Good morning. Spring break, Birmingham 2014. It's such uh, cruddy weather, it, it makes you wish that you were, you were out of town too, but since you're here, doesn't it make you hope that it's cold and wet in Destin? <laughs> I always found comfort in the misfortune of others when they were out and about. Let us pray. Uh, come Holy Spirit, uh, fill this place, uh, fill our lives, fill our hearts, open our eyes to your great work, in Jesus' name, amen. Right, we're continuing to walk through the book of Acts, and now uh, we've gotten to the place where they've switched, they've got Matthias in to replace Judas, and they're sitting there uh, waiting. And this morning we're actually going to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit and uh, being in uh, the believers there in the great event that happened there on Pentecost. So I'm just going to read the text to you. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome? both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Uh, so in the midst uh, of all of this, this is one of those... Uh, passages of scripture that, that does sort of, what does this mean? Uh, you know, it's, we're, we're just like the people who were there that ask, uh, what does this mean? But here are the disciples, there were 120 of them in total, uh, including uh, the apostles, now apostles, who were there waiting for the Holy Spirit. They didn't know exactly what to wait for. And what gets me is that here they are gathered in this room. We don't know what room it was. Uh, a lot of people traditionally have said it's the upper room. But uh, I'm, I'm one of those guys that, that says, let's just stick with what the Bible says and let's not read into it too much. So Luke actually doesn't tell us. And it doesn't really matter because there they are gathered together waiting and the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, on the one hand, they expected something great and amazing to happen. But this is not what they expected. Right? They, they did have the question of Jesus we talked about last week. Uh, is your kingdom going to come now? Is this when it all goes down where we're able to take our place of authority in this world and we will rule the roost? And Jesus says, no. In fact, uh, what I'm going to establish is far greater than any political kingdom. Uh, and the power that you receive will be far greater than any power that you could possibly ever imagine that this world can impart. Because the power that will be imparted to you will be God himself. That God will actually come and reside in you. Now, when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, a lot of Episcopalians break out in hives. 
right? It is. It makes us nervous. It, it, you know, we don't know exactly what to expect. And in America, that's completely understandable because I want you, if you haven't done it already in your life, I want you to turn on the television at two in the morning, right? And, and you get on and you turn on any of the sort of access channels where you can uh, uh, get on. And, uh, and, and what do you, you see folks doing what we would perceive as pretty crazy things. Right, pretty crazy things. I once saw uh, on the television late at night um, some people who said they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and it was causing them to act like animals. One of them was barking, another one was mooing, and I thought, not the Holy Spirit. Right. So I'm glad you laughed. There's agreement there. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit has always seemed as as fantastic as other, and sure enough, I mean, the way the Bible portrays the Holy Spirit, it's not something, he is not something, that you can get a hold of. Uh, God the Father and God the Son fit much, uh, they fit better into our minds and the way that we think about things, and they're relatable, Jesus especially, and because he and the Father are one, he makes the Father relatable. They're, they're in relationship, and they, you're able to say, I understand the concept as God as father, even if we have hang-ups about our dads. I understand Jesus as the son, and I understand him as Lord, and I understand him as savior, and because he's here on the book. I know one of the things that I have a really bad, it ruins movies for me, that when I read a book, and I guess everybody does this, but I've said that once before, and Lauren said, no, not everybody does that. Uh, so, but when I read a book, I, I picture the characters in my mind. Do y'all do that? Yeah, you, you do that. And and then when you, you go, when they make it into a movie and you go to the movie, you're like, that's not what they look like. Right? <laughs> uh, and part of it is, um, is uh, and so that ruins the movie for us. Not only do they not stick to the book, it, they just don't look the right way. But um, and, and they're actually being very considerate of that because when they're picking actors for various books that have been turned into movies, that's one of the things that they're looking for. They'll actually poll people who have read the book and say, what does this character look like to you? Right. And um, I would probably say that most of us have Jesus pictured wrong, but when we see him, we'll know him. Right? We'll say, that is Jesus. Right? He was actually probably a short Jewish guy. Right? Uh, so uh, probably, well, not probably, definitely looks Mediterranean. Uh, bearded. Uh, he doesn't look like the Jesus in my grandmother's living room, sort of blonde, and his eyes follow you all around the room. Uh, not, probably not like that. Um, but his eyes on the sparrow. But um, uh, but the Holy Spirit is something to... Hey, what does the Holy Spirit look like? If you read the book The Shack um, by William... I want to give him credit, even if I'm being critical. William... William, what's his face? So uh, when he, that was, you know, a lot of people had a very hard time with that book because of the characters that he used to characterize God. And he said that, that that's not, he said, of course, these aren't definitive characters to represent the Godhead. Uh, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit was sort of this, and this is what he did, not me, was sort of this shimmery, Asian, kind of spirity, thingy that your children worry about coming out of the closet in the middle of the night. That's what I was thinking of when, when, when he described that. And so when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he is something totally other, but 
he is something totally other. We can't, you know, probably the best thing that we can do is to not try to imprint uh, upon God, either Father, Father, Son, or Holy Trinity, our ideas uh, concerning him. Right, Niebuhr, one of the neighbors once said, in the beginning, uh, God created man in his own image, and since then we've been trying to return the favor. And that's definitely true in the culture that we live in, especially if you've ever had a conversation with somebody and they say, well, I simply can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank, who would do this or who wouldn't do this. And, um, and my response to them is normally, well, what do you have to worry about? You don't believe in God. Well, I kind of do. Well, tell me about the God that you believe in. And they start describing it. says, well, you're describing yourself. Like, do you really want God to be like you? I don't want God to be anything like me. If God is anything like me, we're sunk. <laughs> we're totally sunk. And, uh, and so it's, it's hard for us not, even, even the person who would say is they're an atheist, even to the Christian, to not project our own image uh, on God. There was an article recently in the Wall Street Journal, Dan Ariely, who is a, um, who's an economist, but he actually is a sociologist and psychologist, uh, but he does work for, the, uh, for companies and he teaches at Duke, and he looks at patterns of behavior. I've mentioned him in a sermon before. He's the guy that said, if you want people to think that you're better looking, just find a friend who's an uglier version of you. <laughs> Right. And he also is a guy who did a great research paper on, um, they were trying to figure out why organ donation was so much higher in some European nations and not others. And per our stereotypes, organ donation was very high in places like England and uh, France and the Netherlands, uh, but it was incredibly low in Germany and Italy and of course, what my mind says is, of course, of course they're not giving up their organs because they're selfish. But, uh, I mean, so it was sort of playing into the stereotypes, and Dan Ariel said, surely something, sure, I mean, really, are, are Germans less inclined to give their organs than, than the English? Let's, let's look at it. And so what he found out to be the case was actually the rate of organ donation has everything to do with the question that is asked when you go to the DMV. If you have to opt out of organ donation. If the default is simply, yes, I would like to donate my organs, almost everybody says yes. They won't tick the box. But if you're forced to tick the box to opt in, people psychologically are far less likely to tick the box. And so it turns out that the reason why organ donation is higher in some nations, not others, has everything to do with the DMV. It just does. Isn't that interesting? So uh, I'm not sure why I told you that, except to say he had an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal. He has like, you can write in. And um, they did a survey uh, again. They did it also back in the 50s where they were talking about, um, they sort of put some social issues forward and say, what do you believe about this? And they said, well, here's what I believe on these social issues. And then they asked the question, well, what do you think God believes about these issues? And not surprisingly, um, they said, well, God agrees with me on just about everything. <laughs> um, 
and even today, we have um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks, it used to be that you could say that they were other, but Mormonism, for example, has a, an understanding of unfolding revelation in the world. So they have a, a president, and they actually have a quorum of apostles. They have apostles in the Church of Latter-day Saints, and they make decisions concerning doctrine and things like that, and they have a theology that allows them to change their doctrine literally over night. And so until the 1970s, uh, African Americans could not serve in the priesthood. If you know anything about Latter-day Saints, almost every male is ordained a priest in the Church of Latter-day Saints. But if you were an African American, you couldn't be. Right? Until the late 1970s when their uh, president and their apostles said that they'd received a word from the Lord and now it was okay for them to ordain African-American members, male members, as, as priests, right? Ding, ding, ding. Um, but before we start saying, well, that's them, that's, that's them, uh, the Christian church has started to adopt that as well. Um, we are not one uh, in our culture and day and age to stand on tradition anymore. And so we're very quick to throw over things, uh, which ironically is sort of a, of a, of a flashback um, to... Um, I was talking to someone the other day about some of the issues in the church, and they said, well, you know, um, the, uh, the culture's moving in this direction, and the, the governments are moving in this direction. And, and I thought that was such a funny thing to say, because uh, it's actually a very conservative position, uh, relatively speaking, because there was a point in time when the church was separate from the state completely until Constantine came along, and he issued an edict and said, you're now allowed to be a Christian, and I won't, won't kill you. Um, and, uh, and so all of a sudden they were in, in really bedfellows at that point and wherever the state kind of went, the church kind of went with it. And so that sort of idea of, of the Holy Spirit really speaking through the state uh, and through the culture determining the direction the church would go. Well, Lord have mercy. Um, what we know and what we're going to talk about this morning is we know where the Holy Spirit is moving and where the Holy Spirit is acting because it's always... Uh, congruent with the word of God. Right? God does not contradict himself. If he did, we'd be in a lot of trouble. That is a very slippery slope. A lot of people will say, well, the Bible says thus and such about this. Um, what do you have to say? Now, that's not to say that there aren't things in the Bible that, have, that, that God has, has revealed uh, to us where there is a change, but you look in the scripture and you say, of course, this makes sense. One of the arguments that I'll often get when I'll say, one of the big debates right now about marriage is not, honestly, the sort of idea of same-sex marriages. It's the whole idea of marriage. Like people who are younger just aren't getting married anymore, and that's because the church has failed to articulate and say this is what marriage is about. Right? This is what marriage is for. You ask anybody, uh, any minister today, what is marriage? And you'll get a lot of different answers. Unfortunately... But the failure to speak with clarity has provided, in fact, a, a generation that says, um, we're not going to get married. Uh, we'll just move in together. And I talked uh, with a couple, and this is pretty, I, every couple will say this now that I, I've, I've read a couple articles on it. And this is sort of du jour, but at the time it shocked me. A couple, uh, this is in Buford, a couple who had... Um, who had lived together for about three or four years, they had had a child together, and uh, they, they came to talk to me about some things. And I asked them, I said, well, what's, what's to prevent you from being married? And they said, well, that's, that's a really big step. <laughs> I thought, 
Okay, um, rewind. Uh, I said, you know, even you've been, I really don't have to explain it because you kind of get it. But I mean, you've been, but the thing about it is, is the world doesn't get like to them that makes perfect and complete sense that that like on the one hand I really applaud that they hold marriage in such high regard. But let me tell you, if you've been living together for three or four years and you have a child together, that ship has sailed, right? I mean, any notion of independence or being able to break away, no strings attached, that is over. And uh, and in fact, it's going to call. If you think that, it's going to cause some real problems in your relationship down the road. Uh, so, the church has failed to speak with with clarity uh, about. Uh, certain issues and has sort of opened up the door by saying, well, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking. And I feel like oftentimes the church is trying to answer questions that the culture doesn't have. You understand what I'm saying? The church is trying to put forward answers to questions the world is not asking. And so we tend to get bogged down in things that the world could care less about. Now, sometimes the world needs to care about them, and we need to bring that to their attention. Uh, But we tend to get sidetracked and not really get to the heart of the matter and what is the deepest part of the question. And so when people say, well, for instance, you say you're against this, but what about, you know, the Old Testament says you shouldn't eat shellfish and, uh, and pork, and I saw you... Uh, at Saul's barbecue like it was your last meal. <laughs> I do the combo. And they even throw an extra rib on me when I wear, for my, when I wear my collar. <laughs> um, um, and you know when people say that, that, oh, that's more than enough food. I don't know what that means. And, uh, you know, I saw you eating, bar- and, and, and yet you, you uphold this biblical position, and you tout as this is what the Bible says. And, um, and yet what we find in the narrative of scripture, and the articles of religion actually help us with this, the 39 articles, is that things touching on ceremony and on, on, uh, on civil codes and on things concerning health no longer apply. But things touching on those things which are called moral certainly still apply. And to drive that home, I mean, there was a huge, just when you think, oh, well, you're trying to you know, it's you're just sort of a throwaway argument. I mean, this is a big deal in the church, and this is where the Holy Spirit really had to come through, is if you are a non-Jew and you become a Christian, do you have to follow the Jewish law? And there were Christians who said, yes, you do. Right? And it got to the point where even though that's God was leading in the direction saying, no, that law was for a certain time and a certain place and for a certain people, this is different. It, ha- it actually took God revealing to Peter in a dream, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, um, where Peter has this crazy dream, and on this big sheet are all these animals that he knows he's not allowed to eat, right? Like little clams from Alice in Wonderland wandering around him. And the Lord says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord, for these things are unclean. And he says, do not say that anything that I've made is unclean. Right, so God actually had to directly intervene in Peter's life to get him to come around. And even then, he was still a little bit of a pain uh, about getting to this point. Uh, and so when, when you look at the work of the Holy Spirit and, and leading you in places, um, he never contradicts himself. Right? He's always in accordance uh, with, with the word uh, of God. And you can even look back. I spent a lot of time in the past couple of years looking at the big debate over slavery. Uh, which divided a lot of denominations in the United States uh, here. uh, And um, the Episcopalians, it it didn't affect too much, but certainly the Methodist and the Baptist, the Baptists are still divided uh, by geography 
pretty much, um, because of the issue of slavery. And the Methodists have since uh, come back together. And then when the merger between the North and the South Presbyterians came together, there was a group for, for good reasons, decided not to join the merger, but but remained uh, a different denomination. Um, but in those things, it it's really remarkable uh, to see how people were distorting the word of God and how they were really trying to use God's word to justify something that was clearly not of God. And you see that because you can tell they're struggling, right? It's good to wrestle and it's good to struggle through things. Uh, but it's like Mark Twain said, it's not the part of scripture that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the part I do understand. That, and I will say, the Old Testament and even the Roman understanding of slavery was wholly different than than anything that we had here in the United States and in the Caribbean. Uh, it, it didn't even come close uh, come close to that. In fact, slavery was more often than not used, like indentured servitude. Uh, you had to pay off uh, pay off a debt. Uh, the closest thing that is in it in the Bible is when um, is when uh, like spoils of war. So you you might remember. Um, the um, the story of Naaman um, when when his his little maid the way that the the, um, the King James version says it she was carried off uh, as a trophy of war uh, and yet nonetheless ministered to him uh, which um, is something but uh, so there's looking at, at at the issues that we're confronting with uh, today but is God trying to speak to us in, in a new way I do think that God does speak to us and 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 gets us to be open to different types of vehicles to moving the gospel, right? Um, so it was very funny. We were talking the other day with Bishop Salmon, and he said that his um, his grandmother uh, refused, just hated the new prayer book. And by the new prayer book, he meant the 1928 prayer book. <laughs> and uh, because it took out the prayer for the church militant, Right, you have the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant are those of us believers here on earth. The church triumphant are those who have gone on. And they took out, I mean, not, I mean, again, it's it's really a study in sociology when the prayer book came out in 1928. Uh, when they took out the words church militant, why did they do that? And they also included prayers for the dead for the first time ever in a prayer book. It was on the heels of World War One. And you had all of these men who had died, and uh, you'd had this world war that was very controversial back in the day. And so it was a pastoral response to what do we do? What do we do with the situation? And so, um, unfortunately, the 1979 prayer book came on the heels of uh, the disco era. Uh, and so you you get the system. The system. What is the saying? Uh, uh, we've been saying a lot around. Uh, the system creates. That's what it's designed to create. And yet the Holy Spirit does speak to us in ways of, of how can we move the gospel, which is timeless and unchanging, uh, to a changing world around us. I mean, the, the word of God still speaks today. And I mentioned it last week, but there seems to be a lack of confidence uh, in not just the word, but God's ability to actually change people's lives today. John Stott has this wonderful quote. He said, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible, 
There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the uh, uniting of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Now the thing about Pentecost is they're all sitting there, and what happens? Something like wind comes rushing in, something like fire rests upon the tops of their head, and then they began uh, to speak Mandarin, right? or, or whatever, not Mandarin, but these tongues that we, that we talked about today. And uh, it's interesting, though, that uh, Luke spends almost no time whatsoever talking about what? The wind and the fire, right? except to say that it was like wind, but it was not wind. It was like fire, but it was not fire. Right? And yet, Luke, again, I don't want to read too much into it, and yet this is pretty significant because um, John the Baptist, early on when he's uh, in ministry out in the wilderness, uh, I baptize you with water, but here is one who will baptize you with the fire and with the Holy Spirit. So there you go. Uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, the, the Hebrew word for the breath of God, ruach, like a wind, uh, you know, going out, uh, that it's the spirit of God, uh, the breath of God. And then uh, certainly from the uh, prophet Isaiah, when the angel came and put the coal in his, in his mouth, uh, the sign of purity, of being made clean, of being set apart. Of, of doing uh, something different. And yet Luke doesn't stop and talk about these things. He talks about what we want to talk about. What in the world? Um, you know, I hope you know that when we title classes, it almost has nothing to do with the class. We're just trying to get your attention. Uh, <laughs> Jack Sharman is the best uh, at it. And, uh, and so, but uh, I can, uh, that's what they're, if you remember the, the show Different Strokes, Remember uh, the Gary Coleman, you know, what you talking about, Willis? Uh, I would say that. I would say, what in the world is going on here? And what you've got in Jerusalem at the time is Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. It was, for all intents and purposes, a harvest festival. And people would come in to Jerusalem from all over the world, from the diaspora, and they would, uh, they would celebrate this harvest festival. And actually after Pentecost, the Christian Pentecost, would, uh, it began to be celebrated in, uh, in Judaism as uh, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Uh, and and that, that seems to be a reaction actually to the Christian Pentecost. But some, it used to be confused and everybody thought, well, this is sort of a parallel to the giving of the law off of Sinai. But that idea was actually years later after this event. So if you're reading a commentary or something, that's something to keep in mind. And so Luke begins to talk about they have these tongues being spoken, these languages from all over the world. Now, when, Paul, when Luke says all over the world, uh, he doesn't mean all over the world. What he's talking about is the Jewish world. There was a diaspora. Remember, there were Jews that were, were carried off here and there throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we even have in Acts, we'll see people who are Jewish who are as far away as Ethiopia. Uh, and the places that he's naming here, you're talking about, well, let's just look at them. Let's, let's look at our biblical geography. Um, uh, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. So you're getting up into what is modern day Iran and Iraq. Um, um, the uh, Pamphylia, uh, Phrygia, Pontus, Asia, 
That's modern day Turkey, uh, Egypt, parts of Libya. Well, they, they still exist, and barely. And then, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, visitors from Rome, and even from the island of Crete, and uh, those who are Jewish uh, folks living in Arabia. That they've all come back, and they're hearing uh, everything in their native tongue. Now, what's crazy about this, and what some commentators will say, well. Of course, they knew how to speak Aramaic and Hebrew, and somebody probably knew how to speak Latin, and somebody knew how to speak Greek. But that's not what the people were saying. They were saying, I understand them like they were on the street corner back in Djibouti. Right? That's, that's what I'm hearing, uh, is if I'm back in Cyrene. That's what I'm hearing. Now, what makes this so funny, and we've seen this throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, is that Galileans, because that's what they say, are not those who are speaking here. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Well, the thing about Galileans is they were seen as completely provincial, right? They they tended, and we know this from history, they tended to swallow syllables, and they had a hard time with with using gutturals, which would be very great in English, but in Aramaic, Hebrew, or any of those, or even especially uh, my brother-in-law can speak Farsi fluently, uh, and that's what they speak in Iran. And, um, I mean, my brother-in-law can say in Farsi, I love you, and it still sounds like he's, he's going to punch me in the face, right? It, it does it just, because it's very guttural, right? It's very harsh. German has that in it. And so Galileans had a very hard time with gutturals, and they swallowed syllables. They were seen as provincial. They were seen as lowbrow. And so they're shocked. How could, they can recognize by the accent are not these Galileans because we heard them speaking Aramaic and it's terrible. So how could it be that these rural bumpkins are able to speak these languages? They're able to speak these foreign languages and that, that's what they are. Uh, clearly what we're saying in the book of Acts, there are two places in the New Testament, the other one being in 1 Corinthians, where there's this issue in the church um, where the Greek word that is used is the same Greek word, but we'll talk about that other thing later on. Uh, but here, they're not speaking in some sort of language like you would turn, you'd hear when you listen to the television in the middle of the night, right? It's not sort of. I'm not trying to belittle it, but it's not. It's not an, an indecipherable language because in the book of Acts, what this language is they're actually speaking these foreign languages, which they'd never studied before. But the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, and so they spoke. And not only did they speak, the people understood them. Clearly. Now, in the church in Corinth, what you have is like a prayer language, something that is wholly other that that people cannot um, understand. And so, in Acts, these foreign languages, these tongues, are directed to others. In Corinthians, they're directed toward God. In the book of Acts, the tongues are meant to be understood. In Corinthians, they're not understood by almost everybody else, generally speaking. Uh, and, in, um, and in Acts, they are uh, uh, given uh, to a wider breadth of believers, pretty much all believers there on that day in Pente on Pentecost, not just the apostles. Uh, and then in Corinthians, it's a special gift given uh, to some. Now, I am going to step back for a minute and say a word about this because maybe some of you in here uh, have experienced this or you have friends um, we certainly deal with it on a pastoral basis. Um, there is uh, a church in town 
that uh, some of our youth will go to, and uh, they've come back to us a little bit distraught saying, you know, uh, I thought I was a Christian, and then I went to the church, and they said, because I can't speak in tongues, I guess I'm not a Christian. Okay. Now, um, that, 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 that was unhelpful. Uh, but So what we've had to do is unpack that. What we have uh, here, and, and let me, I want to be very careful of this, this ability... Uh, to speak in languages that other people can understand uh, is something I think that is singular to the New Testament. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's incapable of doing it again. Absolutely, he's incapable of doing it again. Uh, but in the book of Acts, you find something like this is, a, this is kind of a commonplace thing where the Holy Spirit is doing all of these crazy things to advance the kingdom of God and allow people to understand and hear the gospel. And that's another thing, is that when the Holy Spirit does something outrageous... It always draws attention to who and to what. Jesus Christ and the gospel. Always. It's not, I mean, it is initially a spectacular event to the point where people are saying, this is crazy, they must be drunk. And, And Peter's sermon, which we'll talk about next week, is so wonderful because Peter's only defense of that. It's too early for us to be drunk. Like, I mean, if it had happened like at four in the afternoon, it might have been like, ah, how do I defend this? Um, And so, um, that's what makes the scripture so great because it's so real. Uh, and so Pentecost, uh, the way that you look at it in the history of the church, this ex- singular experience is unrepeatable in the same way that Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, and the Ascension are once and for all event. Right? Now, that's, that's the uttering of different languages. But let's look at the, at the spiritual languages that, that 1 Corinthians seems to talk about. Um, I do think that the spirit still moves today and that that is still possible. And at the same time, I see that Paul draws very definitive boundaries around that, right? And so uh, Paul says one thing, that if you have this gift, first of all, it's a gift that's given to some. It's not given to all. And the other thing is that it's, it's a gift that doesn't stand apart. and st- It's actually probably one of the lesser of all the gifts, right? Because, I mean, if you look at the gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, like one of them is administration. How many people say, that guy's a good administrator? How about that? You know, no, I mean, no one ever says, Lord, give me the gift of administration. They tend to pray and want these sort of outrageous things, right? Why? Because one of the things about tongues and why a lot of Christian traditions today will say, well, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in your life, is because we all want evidence. We all want something to show us that is apart from ourselves that that this is real, that God really is uh, in my life. And yet, uh, tongues, uh, Paul says this, I mean, the problem with tongues is that it so easily draws attention to the individual and not to God. And so if you do have this gift, if there's no one there to interpret it, these are Paul's words, be quiet because it's a tremendous distraction, right? This is 2,000 years ago. This is not me looking at TV, watching a guy bark like a dog, right? I don't think that that's biblical. In fact, I know that that's not biblical. But when it comes to these prayer languages, I think that people have inflated it and uh, it's a little much to do about, um, it's still significant. I don't wanna say that it's not, uh, but it's, it's not what people think it is. I would put tongues, again, in the same category as teaching, administration, those other gifts and offerings, and they all come from the Holy Spirit. 
All right, they can't be sort of created uh, with, within us. And I do think that there are some traditions where, um, I mean, if you're, think about it. If you're a teenager and you're told if you, can't, if you don't speak in tongues, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is not in your life. If I'm a teenager, what am I going to do? Hum who stole my Honda? Right, I'm there. Right, I'm, I'm going to do it, right? And then, and then that, but then, but then what you're doing is you're, for, you're actually violating their conscience because then you're forcing them to live a lie, Right? You're forcing them because outwardly they say, Andrew is filled with the Spirit of God. And yet inwardly you say, I must not be. I must not be. But as long as I can keep up this act and play the role. And, and I don't think it's just, I mean, again, it's not just tongues. I mean, we all do things to try to put ourselves on display and say, this is how you can tell that God is working in my life. I'm going to be extra, extra nice. When in fact... It's just me trying really hard to be extra nice. It's not God at all. So, um, so that's uh, we can talk about tongues uh, at, at the very at the very end. Is that actually what the beeper sounds like? I don't know. But it's been doing it all day. That's okay. <laughs> sweet, sweet baby Helen. So there, and the other thing that I would say to kind of bring this all together is that what we see on the day of Pentecost are these people from all over the Mediterranean world coming back together, and it's the Tower of Babel reversed. Remember the Tower of Babel where they all got together? I mean, one of the great theological principles in the Bible is that none of us is as dumb as all of us. And they all get together and they say, we will make a name for ourselves. And anytime anybody, forget when they say it in the Bible, if anybody says, I will make a name for myself, you're cruising for a bruising. And so it's not, I mean, here's the thing, the, the idea of building, a t- I mean, it really wasn't, they didn't really think that they would get up to God. They didn't think we can build a tower so high that we can get, that we can get up to God. But we can, I mean, maybe some of them did, but I think that we're going to build a monument to our ability to be awesome. And, and to do this great thing. And so they built it. And uh, here's the thing, is that nothing that we build and nothing that we create can be so high that God still doesn't have to stoop down to see it. It's very funny that the Bible says, concerning the Tower of uh, Babel, that God stooped down to where they were, and he crushed it, and then he confused the languages. Okay. So, uh, but here is is the difference is that in Babel, you've got everybody trying to get up to God, create a false ladder to heaven. We will be so great and so wonderful that God will have to want to be a part of us, that God will want to be in relationship with us because of what we bring to the table, because we're so great. And yet at Pentecost, God comes down and fills their hearts, right? God humbles himself. He already has in coming down in the form of Jesus Christ. Uh, But now he comes down, the Holy Spirit comes, and he fills the people. Instead of causing confusion in the difference of languages, uh, he now unifies them through the gospel. Because what is it that they're talking about in the tongues, the foreign languages? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. What seems to be the pattern in the in, in Acts and, and elsewhere in the sermons that the disciples and apostles are giving is that 
they began, especially with Jews, uh, they began to recount the mighty works of God in the Old Testament. Uh, the Exodus, how God brought them through the wilderness uh, to, to making them uh, a great uh, people, uh, talking about the Passover, things like that, and uh, God leading them into the promised land, uh, uh, so on and so you know, the judges, the kings, uh, and then even now up uh, to this day where at just the right time, uh, God came into the world and dwelt amongst us. And now uh, God is not far off, but he's been brought near, and you're experiencing that uh, right now. And so they recount, I mean, they don't talk about, I mean, what they do is they talk about God. This is what God has done. Look, in any sermon I preach, I try to relate it. I try to say, look, this is what, honestly, uh, I talk about myself, or I preach to myself, because I think whatever it is that I'm struggling with, somebody else is, is probably struggling with it too. And so um, when I'm preaching and you think, How'd they find that out? I'm, I'm actually talking about me. I'm actually talking about me. Now, that doesn't mean that everything I say pertains to me. Like, if I start talking about, like, I knew this guy who, who buried a body in the backyard, that's not me. Uh, but, um, but ultimately, what, what I want you to walk away with and what the apostles want us to walk away with is this notion of uh, we want you to know the greatness of God and what he's done for you and how he's moved in your life. Right. This, this is, these are the great lengths that he's gone to in order to rescue you. And that's what they're declaring. Uh, they're witnessing uh, to these people, and they're simply talking about, in an objective fashion, this is what God has done. This is history. I'm giving a little history lesson. And the people are just taken back, uh, taken back by it. Not only that, but it wasn't in, I mean, you would think on a day with Jews all in Jerusalem from all over the part, like, that God would just say, we're going to do this in Hebrew. He doesn't. He does it in whatever language they, are, they speak in. Right? Because the gospel is meant to be accessible. You ought to be able to hear the mighty works of God in your own language and to hear it clearly and, um, and to appropriate it uh, for yourself. And so uh, the Holy Spirit uh, has come and dwelt uh, amongst us and inhabited the hearts of the believers and, um, and it's a power that is equipping them to do things that they never thought possible, right? That they, it was unimaginable that they would be able to utter these tongues and to speak uh, in power. And we're going to take a look next week at what this power actually looks like and what a good sermon looks like in, uh, in, in Peter's address uh, to the crowd. Uh, and, then, and then also moving on when he, um, when he talks to the Sanhedrin. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes, we know for a fact, because we know that in the upper room it was Jesus, the disciple, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the women. Okay. My question, this is a linguistic type question, did these people then retain that gift? Let's say this guy can now speak Greek, and, and that is right. a permanent thing with these people, and then they can perhaps go into all these various lands as well. Did they, did they disperse? I don't know. I don't, I don't think that the Bible is clear about that, but, but, but there seem to be indicators that there seem to be some retention uh, simply because, I mean, what the Holy Spirit is doing is the Holy Spirit is going to great lengths in order to advance. I mean, it's remarkable to think that here was this ragtag group of people that were shuttered up because they were afraid they might be next, and within a hundred years, Christianity had just rocked the Mediterranean world. 
Right? That was not because of them. That was because of God. And so the Holy Spirit is willing to go to great extremes, even sort of programming you to speak whatever it is. But what I will say. Right. So, but I think that one of what happens after the the New Testament canon is closed is you do have stories of the the apostles going out into different lands, and so I think it's entirely possible and even likely that God gave them utterance to be able to minister. Like Saint Thomas went all the way to India, um, and so I think that it's uh, according to tradition. If that were the case, I, I think that that that's entirely possible, if not likely. Did the God of Daniel Yes, that's that would be the except, but that was not a positive. That was not a praise the Lord kind of moment. Andrew, is there still when you're talking about um, slavery, is there still a faction of the Baptist Church that believes in slavery? Sometimes I do um, when I look at my children. Um, <laughs> uh, no, there's no faction of, but uh, I mean I'm sure that y'all know that, that 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 slavery is still a big deal, and it's actually even worse today. It's much more insidious than it ever was, especially when it comes to sexual trafficking. And um, and so I think that the sin now is the failure of the church to speak out against it and, and bring it out into the light and call a thing what it is. And um, and that's that's really heartbreaking, especially when even though we, we don't condone slavery here in the United States by law. Um, again, I think I told you it's the biggest um, uh, the day that um, most the biggest day for, for sexual trafficking in, in the world, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. And, and that's us. That's that's us. Um, and so there's there's a real problem with the exploiting of, of, of individuals. I mean, if you have a daughter, what's that? What's that movie taken? Oh, geez. I mean, I have my conceal and carry permit on me now. Just kidding. I know. But uh, but it's so I, I, I don't I think that the, the, the issue is now sins of omission rather than sins of commission that we're turning a blind eye toward it. Sarah Jane. Hi, um, I have a very childlike understanding of speaking in the language that they understand. Mm -hmm. Because even today in this room, we all, God gives us a speaker in a language that we understand. Right. If we had a person where you're standing who said, I seen and I done, and had a polyester suit on that was you know, really mine, we probably would not be able to hear him mm -hmm. in the language that we understand. Mm -hmm. And we, we are... The scripture talks a lot about hearing. Mm -hmm. You know, do you hear? Do you hear? And you need to hear it right. in the language that we do. That's a good point. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It is. I think the emphasis here, H E R E, is is on the speaker. Like, so it wasn't so much. It wasn't. It was the hearers could hear, but you're right. There are all kinds of impediments that we have and and baggage that some people are able to cut through and get. Get out of the way that that others others can't. You're right. You're right. Okay, y'all. Go in peace, love, and serve the Lord. Thank you, God.